Chapter 3 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector Macpherson. Chapter 3 The Orb of Night. In early times, as was seen in the previous chapter, men believed that the earth was the centre of the universe, and round it all the orbs of heaven revolved. Today we know that only one celestial body owns allegiance to the earth. That orb is our satellite, the moon, which goes around our world once in about twenty-seven days. The moon's revolution round the earth from east to west in a little over a day is only apparent, the result of our planet's rotation on its axis but its motion from west to east is real. We owe much to the moon. To it we owe the glorious silvery light which our satellite sheds on us. As Flammarion has said, quote, It is the delightful hour when all nature pauses in the tranquil calm of the silent night. The sun has cast his farewell beams upon the weary earth. All sound is hushed, and soon the stars will shine out one by one on the bosom of the sombre firmament. Opposite to the sunset in the east, the full moon rises, slowly, as it were, calling our thoughts towards the mysteries of eternity, while her lamplight spreads over space like a dew from heaven. End quote. Not only is the moonlight useful, it is exquisitely beautiful. The most casual observer of the heavens cannot fail to notice that as the moon moves eastwards in the heavens its form changes. When we first see the new moon in the western sky above the sunset, it is a slender crescent of silvery light. Night after night it grows in size until about five days after we first see it, it is half full. It has reached its first quarter. It continues to grow for about another week until one evening it rises just as the sun sets and reaches the meridian, the point due south, about midnight. While it is fully illuminated and its round disk sheds over our world that inimitable light known as moonlight, then slowly its size decreases, it rises later and later and grows smaller and smaller until when it reaches its last quarter, it is only to be seen in the morning hours. And then it draws closer to the sun until its thin little crescent is lost in the sunrise to emerge some days before the sunset as new moon. Those who do not give the matter sufficient consideration believe that the moon actually changes its shape as it moves round the earth. Indeed, it is recorded of a novelist that he wrote of a star shining between the horns of the crescent moon the poet Coleridge makes the same mistake in The Ancient Mariner. A little consideration, however, will show that there is no real change of shape. Like our own world, the moon is a dark globe, and it only shines by the reflected light of the sun. Therefore, only one half of the globe is illuminated at once, just before the crescent of the new moon appears, when the moon is between the earth and the sun, the dark side of the moon is turned to the earth, and we do not see it. At first quarter, we only see one half of our satellite illuminated. As the moon moves eastward, we see more and more of the illuminated surface, until at full moon, the orb is at the other side of the earth from the sun, 
and we see it fully illuminated. Then, as it draws closer to the sun, we see less and less of the illuminated surface until it becomes once again invisible. What is the distance of the moon? That is the first question which presents itself to the beginner in astronomy. The distance varies slightly from time to time as its orbit round our Earth is not circular, but slightly elliptical or oval, but the average distance is 238,000 miles. It is near to us when compared to the other celestial bodies, but the question at once occurs, how is it possible to measure the distance? We do not require to reach the moon in order to measure its distance, any more than we require to ascend a mountain to measure its height. In these measurements we proceed on the principles of land surveying. The principles of land surveying depend on the measurement of angles. As Professor Comstock puts it, quote, the instruments used by astronomers for the measurement of angles are usually provided with a telescope, which may be pointed at different objects, and with a scale to measure the angle between lines drawn from the instrument to two different objects, such as two church steeples, or the sun and moon, and this is usually called the angle between the object. By measuring angles in this way, it is possible to determine the distance to an inaccessible point. End quote. An observer wishes to measure the distance of a flagstaff at the other side of a river which he is unable to cross. Accordingly, he chooses two points on his own side of the river from which to make observations. The line joining these points he calls the baseline, the length of which he ascertains. From either point he measures the angle subtended by the opposite sides at these points. Having measured the angles, he now determines the elements of the triangle, and by means of trigonometry he knows the distance across the river to the flagstaff without having ever crossed it. Similarly, in regard to the distance of the moon, one astronomer located, say, at Greenwich or Edinburgh, measures the moon's position amid the neighbouring stars. Another, at Cape Town or Sydney, measures its position seen from that place. The difference of position of the moon at the two stations, the parallax, as it is called, is then measured and the distance of the moon is found to be 238,000 miles, a great distance indeed when compared with our terrestrial standards, but very small in the eyes of the astronomer. A railway train travelling night and day at the rate of 60 miles an hour would reach the moon in six months. The moon, as it were, is our own particular possession. It illuminates our nights. It raises the tides in our oceans. It revolves around our world. It is the nearest of the celestial bodies, the only one whose distance is to be measured in thousands of miles. As has been remarked, it is a detached continent, and as we shall see later, this is probably true in more senses than one. As a result of its proximity, we know more of the moon than of any other celestial body. Indeed, we know its geography, or rather, selenography, better than we know that of the earth. We are close enough to the moon to see its surface spread out before us in a bird's-eye view. By trigonometrical measurements, we can measure the heights of the lunar mountains. We have seen the poles of the moon. This, however, only applies to one hemisphere of the moon. The other side has never been seen by human eye. 
The explanation is that the moon, instead of turning on its axis in 24 hours like the Earth, requires for its rotation on its axis the exact period of its revolution. Thus, the moon always turns the same face to the Earth, owing, however, to the fact that the moon's velocity in its orbit varies, the orbit being slightly elliptical, while the rate of rotation remains the same, we sometimes catch a glimpse of the other hemisphere. This is known as the libration of the moon. So far, the moon has been viewed as an object and as a satellite of the Earth. It must now be considered as a world. When we look at the moon, even casually, we cannot but notice that the bright disk is diversified. Most people see in the full moon a likeness to a human face, and this is called the man in the moon. Even in the crescent moon and half moon, it is obvious that there are dark markings. In early times, no one knew what these markings signified. Some of the ancients thought that the moon was a great mirror in which we saw the earth's markings reflected, while others held the correct view, namely, that the diverse markings represented the actual configuration of the moon's surface. Soon after the invention of the telescope, Galileo turned his little instrument on the moon. He was thus enabled to show that our satellite was diversified by mountains and valleys and great grey stretches which he believed to be seas. Later astronomers following in this belief gave these grey stretches names. Thus we have on the moon the Mare Serenitatis, Sea of Serenity, the Mare Tranquillitatis, the Sea of Tranquility, etc., it was obvious as astronomical research progressed that these stretches were not seas, but great plains. It is now known that there are no seas on the moon, but the old names are retained for convenience. It is quite possible that these plains are ocean beds from which the water has long since disappeared. Like the earth, the moon is diversified by all kinds of formations. There are mountain ridges, isolated mountains, and volcanic craters, the mountain ranges have been called after the mountains on the earth. Thus there are on the moon the Alps, the Apennines, and the Carpathians. The highest mountains on its surface so far as known are the Dörfel and Leibniz Mountains, about 25,264 feet high. As Flammarion remarks, quote, Relatively to its proportions, the satellite is much more mountainous than the planet, and the mountainous giants are much more numerous than here. If we have peaks like the highest of the Himalayas and of the whole earth, whose elevation of 29,000 feet is equivalent to 1,140th the diameter of our globe, there are peaks on the moon of 25,264 feet, those of Dörfel and Leibniz, the height of which is equivalent to one four hundred and seventieth of the lunar diameter. It will thus be seen that the peaks of the moon are much higher in proportion to its size than those of our own world. The surface, too, is much more rugged and mountainous than that of the earth. There has been much volcanic activity on the earth, but there has been much more on the moon. Indeed, on it the volcanic crater is the commonest type of formation, the smallest telescope will reveal the largest of these wonderful formations. The craters are named after eminent astronomers, men of science, and philosophers, and among the more prominent, 
are Tycho, Copernicus, Plato, and Archimedes. Some of these craters are enormous. A large type of formations somewhat similar to the craters are the walled plains. Some of these are actually 150 miles across, and they are, as their name implies, encircled by ramparts of considerable breadth, which in some cases rise to a height of about 12,000 feet above the enclosed plains. In some cases, too, the floors of these walled plains are diversified by the presence of minute craters and mountains. Another curious formation, peculiar to the moon, is that known as the rills. Of these rills, the late Mr. Elgar, a well-known English observer of the moon, writes, quote, They often extend for hundreds of miles in approximately straight lines over portions of the moon's surface, frequently traversing, in their course, ridges, craters, and even more formidable obstacles, without any apparent check or interruption. Their length ranges from 10 or 12 to 300 miles or more, their breadth from less than half a mile to more than two, and their depth from 100 to 400 yards, end quote. On the earth we have nothing like them, great yawning chasms running for miles over craters, mountains, and plains. The study of the moon's surface is now a distinct branch of astronomy. To it many distinguished astronomers, such as Mädler and Schmidt, have given the best part of their lives. Schmidt, a notable German astronomer, commenced his observations of the moon with a view to constructing a chart at the age of fourteen, he just lived to finish his great work about forty years later. In recent years, photography has been largely used in the study of the moon, and in the able hands of Professor W. H. Pickering of Harvard, USA, much has been learned in this way concerning the lunar surface. To the casual observer, the first quarter is the most satisfactory phase. The full moon is a disappointing object in the telescope, the sun is shining directly on its surface. It is noon on the part of our satellite, which we are observing, and the mountains and crater walls cast no shadows, just as on our own world the shadows are shortest at noon. At the first quarter, on the other hand, it is positively fascinating to watch the dividing line between light and darkness, the terminator, as it is called in astronomical language, and to note the sunrise on the various mountain peaks. It is about the time of the first quarter that we see the surface of the moon at its best. It is at this time that the moon is most useful to the astronomer, just as the full phase is the most useful to the ordinary inhabitant of the earth. We have briefly described the surface of the moon, its grey plains, its mountains, its craters and rills. What do we learn from a study of these features? Is our satellite a world like the earth? It is not a world like the earth. The first great difference is obvious to the most casual observer. The moon's surface is always to be seen clearly defined without a trace of haziness. There is no atmosphere. Practically, it is an airless globe. Could we see the earth from some point in space, we should sometimes see it clearly defined when the atmosphere was clear, but at times we should see it enshrouded in cloud. But we never see clouds on the moon. It is airless. Not only is there no air, there is no water. The moon's surface is to all intents and purposes changeless, airless, and lifeless. Without air there can be no water, without water, no life. There is no vegetation on the grey plains, no heathery moors, no pine-covered mountains, merely a succession of arid, it may be, crumbling rocks. 
As Professor W. H. Pickering has pointed out, there is probably a certain amount of change, almost imperceptible. At the bottoms of the craters there seem to be some last relics of the moon's atmosphere, and perhaps the remnants of a lunar vegetation, perhaps a feeble little eruption almost unnoticeable, but that is all. The moon is a dead world, and it is exceedingly unlikely. Indeed, we may say it is impossible that any but the very lowest forms of fungus life could live on it for one hour. The want of air, as already said, means want of water. It also means violent change of temperature. The moon's day is equal to twenty-nine and a half of our days in length. For half of the period the sun beats down on the surface of the moon. There's nothing to temper the broiling heat. The surface is scorched and baked. Then the sun sets and the long night comes on. There is no air to retain the heat. It escapes into space, and the lunar surface is frozen by an intense cold, a cold more terrible than we can conceive. Could we visit the moon? What an extraordinary world we should find it to be. There is no atmosphere, and as a consequence of this the stars are visible in all their glory when the sun is shining. On earth the stars are invisible in the daytime, because the sunbeams are dispersed in our atmosphere, and this veil of sunbeams hides the stars from view. But on the moon there is no veil of sunbeams. The sun is seen with all his appendages, which on earth are invisible except during total eclipses, his red flames and his corona. Slowly, very slowly, the sun creeps across the black sky, until in fourteen earthly days he sinks below the horizon to illuminate the opposite hemisphere. From the side of the moon facing earthwards, there is seen hanging, fixed and motionless in the sky, an enormous orb, a gigantic moon shedding its rays continually on the surface of our satellite. Sun and stars may pass behind it, but this orb hangs fixed in its place in the heavens. This body, which appears from thirteen to fourteen times as large as the moon seems to us, is our dwelling place, the earth. The magnificence of the earth light, which our world sheds on the surface of the moon, is difficult to imagine. From the moon's surface, our world is to be seen in all its aspects, blue skies, clouded skies, haze and mist. Sometimes it is full earth, sometimes new earth, sometimes the quarters continually spinning on its axis and exhibiting every part of its surface in turn. Of the power of this reflected light we may get an idea from a consideration of a common phenomenon seen from the earth. Most people have seen the old moon in the new moon's arms. The crescent moon, completed by a darker portion which shines with a dull light. This is the portion of our satellite illuminated by earthshine, and reflecting back to us the light of our own planet. Thus we see the light of our own world reflected back to us from the heavens. The chief features of the silver orb of night have been described. It has been seen to be a globe, similar in some respects to the earth, but vastly different in its physical condition, a globe uninhabited and uninhabitable, a succession of rugged, jagged rocks, great grey barren plains and volcanic regions. We have now completed our survey of the earth's vicinity and have passed the first signpost on a journey through the depths of space. End of section 3, read by Sandra, Muskoka, 2022.